Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to The Full Ratchet for part two of our discussion with Nikki Shavak of Blackbird Ventures. In this segment, we continue the discussion on customer-centric investing and also get Nikki's candid thoughts about the opportunity for startups in Australia and also other ecosystems outside of the Valley. In this episode, we cover the water crisis in Australia and how that impacts innovation in startups. I asked Nikki if a company like Instacart would be in their thesis or not because it requires a localized presence to build out new markets. We then talk about the dynamic of founding a startup in the Valley versus one founded in other tech centers around the world. And I get his thoughts on what type of companies are best to found outside of a major tech ecosystem. We then transition into the advantages that startups founded in Australia have over startups founded elsewhere. And then we round out the discussion by getting Nikki's advice for founders that are starting in regions outside of the States. And of course, as always, we will wrap up with key takeaways and a tip of the week. Here's part two of the discussion with Nikki Shavak on customer-centric investing down under. Back on, on your marketplaces point, um, I was talking to, I think, Samil Shah about Instacart and how the eventual goal with Instacart is uh, to be able to turn on a city just with the click of a button, uh, essentially. But in the interim, they have to kind of build out in a localized fashion, city by city, install a general manager, a marketing team, some feet on the street, um, more similar to an, an Uber model. Uh, how would you think about a marketplace like an Instacart? Would that be something that uh, would be within your your thesis and your focus area because their ultimate goal is to be location agnostic from a technology standpoint? Or is the local build out site by site, does that sort of preclude you from becoming involved? Yeah, um, usually it would. So, you know, in general, you know, we would look for global marketplaces and obviously we'd miss things like Uber and Instacart, which are, are local marketplaces and, you know, could be good businesses. I think Uber is a, a wonderful business. Instacart, I think, still has a, a lot to prove out that it will be a, a great business. But, you know, in general, you know, for our sweet spot of our strategy, I, I would say we'd unfortunately miss out on, on both of them, even though, it would have been a great investment returns, particularly in the case of Uber. I think, you know, where we would make exceptions around sort of true technology advances. So, you know, as I said, robotics. So, you know, we're an investor in a company called Zooks, which is 
trying to reinvent sort of the notion of what comes after the car. So if you don't have to have a steering wheel and you don't have to have all of these conventions of a, a car, you know, what kind of user experience could you create? And, um, you know, notionally, it's a, a similar kind of ride sharing model, but, you know, with this sort of true deep technical insight as to how the user experience can can dramatically change. So I think, you know, things like robotics, um, you know, another company where an investor in is is Flirty, which uh, is a drone delivery company that delivers food. And so again, you know, notionally competitive with Instacart or DoorDash or, or something like that, but you don't have people delivering the food, you have drones delivering the food. Pretty cool. You know, when I was living in Australia, part of the, uh, the dialogue of the media and the public had to do with water. And it was something I, that was totally foreign to me. Having grown up in the States, I had, I had never been a part of like a water crisis or a, a significant lack of water. I grew up very close to the Great Lakes and uh, water was constantly a, a topic in Australia and something that people were concerned about. Do you see uh, a focus, a sector focus or, or innovation that has to do with, with the water industry? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you think of the water as like the chief input of life, like obviously you drink water, but, you know, there's so much water that goes into the production of food, um, whether that's plants and fruits and vegetables or meat. So I think particularly around how do you, you know, better and, and more efficiently produce food and, you know, water being that chief input. I think in Australia in particular, obviously it tends to be a fairly, you know, most of Australia is kind of a desert and, you know, most of the country lives on, on the coast, coastal lines of Australia. So, you know, it has a particular kind of climate, you know, and also because it is such a large country and a small population, agriculture does tend to be a pretty big industry in Australia. But I think, you know, the, the water input and the role that technology can help with is, you know, how do you more efficiently produce food in, you know, perhaps with global warming and environment with, with less water. So in your estimation, are some companies better off being founded in the Valley versus one of the tech centers in Australia? And if so, what type of companies? Yeah, I, I would say um, companies almost entirely, I think companies should be founded outside the Valley. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the initial stages of building a product and, and building a product team, it's almost entirely likely that you will have a competitive advantage founding a company and hiring a product team in some other area of the world, whether that's another city in the US or whether that's another country in the world. And so, so that, that first kind of inception moment from a company team building moment, it's probably better to, to not be in Silicon Valley. Where it might be better to then take advantage of Silicon Valley is in the scaling stage where you know you have built a product and now you're building a business. And I think the so the the kind of democratization or the dispersion of great product teams, I think, has already happened. It, it, they're, they're already around the world. It's unlikely that you'll hire, you know, a, 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 it, it's so hard to hire great product people in, in uh, San Francisco and it's so hard to keep them around and it's so expensive to, to do so. Where the, the sort of business builders, those who have built small technology companies into large ones, I still think... Silicon Valley has a great uh, advantage and a great concentration of people who have done that. So it's the stage that kind of Silicon Valley is is used. I think the very early stages, it probably makes more sense and you have more chance if you do it somewhere else. 
And I think, you know, once you have something and you're scaling a company, you know, the gravity of Silicon Valley will inevitably pull you there. You know, what we tend to see with our companies is is the product team is is built out in Australia. And as the business starts to scale, they still keep the heart and soul and the, and the product team in Australia, but they'll open up a US office for kind of more customer facing, customer success, marketing, sales, and, and so on to, you know, be in San Francisco or, or other areas of of the US. So I think it's not really an either or as well. I think, you know, all companies that are successful end up with multiple offices around the world. But I think, you know, the, the sort of step one of the sequence of build a product team and then step two, build a sort of US office that's more customer facing. That tends to be the the common story around startups. And I think even if you look at uh, startups in Australia and even if you look at Silicon Valley startups, it's almost, you know, Silicon Valley tends to be a, the, the facade of a company or you look at the company and it looks like they're in Silicon Valley where, you know, the product is built outside of Silicon Valley. Like, you know, Intercom is mainly built in Dublin or Stripe in London or LogMeIn in Hungary or Atlassian in Australia. So even though it looks like a, a Silicon Valley company, it's 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 not a Silicon Valley company or the majority of employees of Zenefits being in Phoenix, not in San Francisco. So I think, again, Silicon Valley has a, a monopoly or not a monopoly, a, a great concentration of business builders. But I think product and, and great engineering teams are anywhere in the world. Sure. Well, while we're talking about Australia, what in your estimation are the advantages of startups being founded in Australia versus startups founded elsewhere? Well, I think it's the the access to, to great product people. It's the advantage of being able to hire a great person for a reasonable cost and that person sticking around over a long period of time. And so being able to build a great product team in the beginning stages, that, that first 10, 20, 30 people, I think companies have, have a great advantage in, in, you know, particularly Sydney and Melbourne in Australia to, to be able to do that relative to San Francisco. I'm not sure whether it's a great advantage relative to other cities around the world, but certainly if you build the first 10 or 20 people in Sydney or Melbourne that that are mainly developers, designers, product managers, and so on, it's probably you know a better and, and more easy task to do that in Sydney or Melbourne versus San Francisco. You know, beyond that though, usually as the the sort of customer success, the marketing, the sales, the the business building positions, that's when I think uh, San Francisco has a, a huge advantage over Sydney and Melbourne. But again, you know, that, that step two, usually it's an Australian office uh, or core of a, an Australian team supplemented with a, with a US office. Well, SF doesn't have footy. No, exactly. And <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, what advice would you give to founders starting up in regions outside of the States? Um, I think it's just to have the confidence that they are no different than, you know, founders who are starting up in, you know, meccas like Silicon Valley. I think people tend to overestimate that there's a magical kingdom of startups in San Francisco and people <laughs> are walking around handing out silver bullets. And I think the reality is that everyone is in, in such a... Uh, uh, you know, such the same kind of disappointing, uh, low probability position as everyone else. And and I think, uh, you know, just to have the confidence that they are just as good or just as bad as anyone else in the world and, and just to go and do it and not be fearful and, and not kind of put up these mental barriers between them and, and actually doing a, a business and, and solving a problem. And I think, 
sometimes people who think about kind of like, is this a good ecosystem or is this a good time to start a startup or, you know, they tend to be not the the real founders. I think the real founders are kind of infected with an idea and become obsessed about a problem. And, you know, that, that there's no kind of consideration given to all of these other kind of external factors. It's just, they have to do it. And I think, you know, having uh, more people like that and just having more people with the confidence to do that, that, that that's what it's all about. Great point. Nikki, if we could address any topic related to startups or venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the most fascinating topic to me in venture capital is the, the people like Founders Fund or social capital that are really thinking about the investment business as, as investing in great companies rather than saying, we invest in early stage companies or late stage companies. I think people have sort of ignored the fact that the definition of venture capital has actually expanded dramatically in the last decade where, you know, people in 99 or, or 2000 used to go public with $20 million of revenue. And now, you know, that might be a series B round of a, uh, a venture fund that then goes and invests in the next three or four financings and even public market investing in, you know, if you would have invested in the IPO of Google 12 years ago, I think Google went public at a $23 billion valuation. If you invest uh, invested in that IPO, that would have been one of the best venture investments you could have ever made, you know, of the, of the 2004-2005 time period. And so, I think the uh, the definition of venture or the the people who view it as investing in great companies versus investing in early stage companies and and you know certainly the inspiration for me personally has been sort of the thinking of social capital or, or founders fund and and taking different approaches to that and even you know taking different approaches to uh, we only invest in the early rounds and not investing even hundreds of millions of dollars into into the later rounds of a single company and 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 having a a deeply concentrated position within the fund of a of a single company. I think those sorts of rethinking or, or questioning of the wisdom of um, some of those choices I think is fascinating to me and um, would be awesome to to hear other people uh, discuss them as well. So it sounds like there's some firms that provide some inspiration for you. Uh, are there specific startup investors that have inspired and influenced you a great deal, and why? Yeah, I, look, I've um, I've only met Peter Thiel once, so I don't know if he'd remember me, and I haven't met Jamath uh, yet. But you know, the the thinking of the two of uh, two of them have really forced me to shape you know how I think about the world of investing. You know, I also deeply love Warren Buffett and. And Charlie Munger, I think, uh, you know, again, they, if you had to sum it up, have really studied and, and thought about what makes a great business versus what makes a ordinary or a bad business. And I think you might think that the, you know, the two groups are on opposite sides of the spectrum, but I think uh, they have so much more in common than than not. And um, And it's all around this kind of uh, appreciation of what makes a great business. And finally, Nikki, was the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter. So Nikki Shavak, N-I-K-I-S-C-E-V-A-K, or uh, just email me at Nikki, N-I-K-I, at blackbird.vc. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for the time. It was, it was great getting the perspective and hearing more about Blackbird. And uh, I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. 
At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Okay, thanks again to Nikki for coming on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called founder ideology. The first thing Nikki looks for in a startup is what he calls the two shits. Why does someone care and can they get stuff done? He tries to understand what life story led the founder to solve this problem. Why are they going to put everything into building this company? He observes prior work and life experiences for insights into the elusive product founder fit. And recall that Nikki said that the team slide is not about nice headshots and logos. From his standpoint, the team slide reveals itself in the product. Everything from the design to the core function of the product will show the true capability of the team, much more so than any PowerPoint slide can. And it's not just what they've put into the product, but also what they've left out. Nikki is skeptical of those founders that may be too logical and outcome-focused. Those that say, China is a big market, and if I can only get 1% of the billion-dollar Chinese market, then we'll all be rich. He looks for strong opinions around seemingly small details, and Nikki believes it is those small details that hold the key insights and the magic to why he invests. Key takeaway number two is called Global Focus Narrow Target. Blackboard likes to see global SaaS products that can be located anywhere and can be scaled with marketing as opposed to sales. With SaaS businesses, how do you sell to the worker user rather than selling to the CIO? They look for bottoms-up adoption and engagement models, not the forced top-down sales-driven business models. And he added that sales-driven businesses can sometimes misrepresent the true opportunity for the product. If you have a particularly charming salesperson, they may be effective selling the product to those that otherwise would not have purchased. So this can have the effect of distorting the data and making the business look more scalable than it actually is. And a global customer strategy does not mean a vague and generic customer definition. Nikki advised that startups don't target customer groups that are too broad and heterogeneous. He discussed SMBs and how it's kind of a false category. An SMB, by definition, is based on the number of employees a business has. By that definition, Blackbird Ventures would be considered a part of the target market. Instead, Nikki suggests that one has a more fine-tuned definition of the market segmentation, the types of customers being targeted, 
and the need profiles therein. In this case, he cited the example of dentists. It's much more reasonable for an investor to assess whether early adopter dentists are going to be more representative of the mass market of dentists versus SMB early adopters being representative of all SMBs in the mass market. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called It's All About Engagement. When asked what key metrics Blackbird looks for, Nikki cited metrics that are much more engagement-focused than acquisition-focused. He'd rather see a small number of customers that are highly engaged and really passionate about the product versus a huge number of customers with only a small percentage that are engaged. They look at net promoter score. In SaaS, they look for upgrade revenue and low churn. And with any business, they assess if the solution is truly addressing the problem. If the customer has X problem, what percentage of the time do they use the product to solve that problem? And he attempts to assess all metrics as a percentage. None are absolute values. During the interview, Nikki summarized the definition of a business, and he defined it as the number of customers that come back again and again. He's seen many businesses that skyrocketed to success with great escalating revenue that ultimately did not work out because they didn't have sticky, happy customers that kept returning. He cited Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and the importance of building a small monopoly where one should focus on a small number of people that care very deeply about the product before attempting to get to scale. Crossing the chasm from a few innovators to a large majority is much more realistic with a raving fan base of evangelists leading the charge. Remember Nikki's insight that there is no stronger forward predictor of success than a deeply engaged user that really, really loves the product. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called What Makes SaaS So Special? Many articles are written every week about how to succeed in SaaS, but less often do people write about why SaaS is so special. It's a business model applied to a product type that has become a massive focus area. Venture has not seen a category of startups like this before. Some investors create an entire thesis just focused on software as a service. So rather than spending this week's tip on another top 10 list of how to win in SaaS, instead, let's explore why the category itself is so special. From my standpoint, it all boils down to three simple reasons, proximity to customer, measurables, and value focus. So the first point was proximity to customer. Part of the brilliance of SaaS is that businesses develop a direct relationship with end users. They often sell directly to them and have an ongoing feedback loop with them. While this provides numerous product and versatility advantages, maybe the biggest advantage is in what this eliminates. Proximity to the customer disintermediates traditional channel players. Wholesalers, distributors, resellers, retailers... What intrinsic value do these players provide? None. They reduce margin for the value creators, and they increase price for the value consumers. By removing layers upon layers of mouths to feed, the only transaction necessary is the one between creators and the customers. Thus, all the value resides with them. Okay, the second point here had to do with the fact that SaaS is measurable. When I think of metrics, I recall Peter Drucker's famous quote, 
you can't manage what you don't measure. Or you may remember this one from Dwight Eisenhower. Plans are nothing. Planning is everything. The set of standardized metrics available in SAS makes the category much easier to assess. The problems are more easily uncovered. Best practices are readily transferable. This gives both the founder and the investor a playbook to work from. It helps each identify the root cause of issues and take actions against them. The forecast itself may be terribly inaccurate, but it drives the right discussions and allows for fast reaction. Okay, and then the third point here on why SaaS is so special is due to the value focus. SaaS businesses typically charge upfront and ongoing. Strong value must exist for customers to pay for the product. And this value must sustain or the customer will select out. With many businesses, the value transacted ends after the initial sale. With SaaS, it's the opposite. The first transaction is the beginning of a long, healthy annuity. This puts pressure on the startup to provide real and increasing value. And as I wrote in a post called The Customer Volume Value Curve, the startup can share in this value as they expand it over time. It's no secret that my strategic focus area is not SaaS. I'm a hardware investor. I hunt for compelling startups developing IoT with a recurring revenue stream. For now, I'll refer to this as IOTR, standing for Internet of Things with Recurring. So why would I knowingly choose something other than SaaS when I'm aware of its massive advantages over other types of businesses? We can talk about the merits of IOTR another time, but fundamentally, this category shares the same three value drivers as SaaS. Proximity, measurement, and value are key strengths for this business model as well, and it's far less overheated than SaaS. Remember the trappings of herd mentality in venture capital. In this industry, it often pays to be the contrarian. Many other investors have a sector specialization, which provides them an advantage during startup evaluation. They should be able to pick better due to their strong knowledge of the sector's success factors. But that sector must also be positioned to outperform other sectors over the investment time horizon to make it worth investing in. Fred Wilson and USV understood this well. They didn't limit themselves to one sector, but rather developed a thesis on network effects, a factor that gives every startup leveraging them an unassailable advantage. So to finish this point, startup investing is not just about great teams with great products in great markets. At the company level, those may be the key factors. But if you zoom out to the industry or category level, one's thesis should present advantages. If you zoom out further, there are macroeconomic factors that come into view. Sector, technology, thematic, and business model specializations can all offer investors an edge. Some short-term, others sustaining. Whatever the case, one shouldn't just have an edge as a picker. They should also be playing a game that's rigged to win. In the sports industry, the most valuable hockey franchise is the New York Rangers, and they're valued at $1.25 billion. The least valuable NFL franchise is the Buffalo Bills, and they're valued at $1.5 billion. You need not focus on SaaS or IOTR, but what game are you playing? Why is your category giving every startup within it an edge over the rest? If you can answer these questions, you're way ahead of most. 
All right. Thanks again to Nikki Shavak for coming on the program. And I hope all of you out there listening have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us in 2017 for some great content coming up. Thank you.